0: Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright here in Fitzgerald, chat to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama from Wales and beyond to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is lovely Theatre Director, Writer, Practitioner, Sarah Argent. Hi Sarah, how's it going?
1: Hi Kieran, it's lovely to be here. I, I feel really delighted after all this time to be finally getting to speak to you in this context with We've been talking for a while mm.
0: in different contexts, but it's, it's lovely exactly. to have been invited to take part in one of these podcasts. Thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I guess we only connected recently through a project we did um, back in the summer, which we're going to talk about later on. But it was great to have you on. Um, how has how this period of lockdown been for you?
1: i think if i'm honest early lockdown was much easier i think that the birds were singing there were no vapor trails in the sky there was cherry blossom Mm -hmm. there was as a freelancer obviously when when lockdown immediately happened in theater it was terrifying we had no idea was there going to be any financial support for us every piece of work we had just evaporated but after that initial shock had stabilized and we knew that some of us very luckily, were eligible for the self-employed income support. There was a period in early twenty twenty, mid twenty twenty, that was actually about re-evaluating life mm. and spending time thinking, being, breathing. Bizarrely, alongside the horror of deaths mm. and the virus, um, so it was very mixed time. I think now, in some ways, even though things are opening up, it's kind of harder. I think we're now facing yeah. so many moral dilemmas, um, scientific dilemmas.
0: Um, I I I think life has to continue, but it has to continue in a safe way, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, it feels like that, to some extent, has gone out the window in the last few weeks.
1: Absolutely, I think I think the aggression between people. Um about their response to masks to social distancing to yeah. vaccines means that there's an additional element in society that is is fraught and tense and and mm. fairly toxic. so I think there are times when yeah now is is quite hard, and theater is opening up, but in different ways in different places. Um, and the sort of the pressure to be making work again which is wonderful but maybe some of the conditions are still quite quite difficult yeah things where we'd hoped that we might rebuild better haven't necessarily happened in the way that we'd hoped they might and then there are glorious beacons of of Mm -hmm. wonderful engagement again with audiences that hopefully we're going to talk about
0: um, oh definitely
1: through, through the podcast
0: but before we get there, my first question, as you know, you've listened to this podcast, is always, how did you first get interested in theatre? Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm going to try not to be too long, but it's a kind of 56-year answer. Um, right. <laughs> I'm extremely lucky to have, the, have theatre as part of my life for my, for my entire life. Um, I was adopted into the Argent family when I was eight days old. And my dad um, was an actor and a director and was working in various drama schools when when I came into the family. So it's been, not in my blood, but in my upbringing. um, We're not that kind of hideous theatre dynasty family that people... um, (laughs) Certain people who've been in the public eye of late have possibly been part of. Um, don't know if that's a bit contentious um my dad was from a solidly working class background yeah. and, and got a scholarship to rada back in the early 1950s when um certainly the voice staff would talk about his hideous strangulated cockney vowels and right. they sort of metaphorically beat that out of him so he ended up speaking um rp and people therefore assumed he was quite posh but he, he wasn't um But because of that journey he'd been on, I came into this family and from kind of the age of two, I think is my earliest theatre memory, of going to a rehearsal of Dad's. And then when I was four, I was in his production of Brecht's Caucasian Chalk Circle playing Michael, the little boy, at at Guildhall in in London. I think the big delight for me was I got a bit of cake and I got a little costume. So I I had no idea what I was part of. but. Um, what was
0: going to the theatre a regular thing as a child?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I this makes me sound so privileged, but age seven, I saw Peter Brooks' acclaimed production of a Midsummer Night's Dream* <laughs> in Liverpool Playhouse.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: I had no idea what it was or who he was, I just remember there was this amazing big white box and fairies spinning plates and on trapezes and at the end the applause went on for about 20 minutes Um, and the actors came into the audience and shook your hands and they spotted this little girl and quite a few of them shook my hand. And then, name drop, name drop, I sat on the bus, on the coach going back from Liverpool to Manchester with Julie Walters singing Beatles songs. So I was this precocious little theatre child. Um, But it, it, yeah, I I had an amazing childhood of going to see some of the world's best theatre companies Um, and a lot of theatre that wasn't what somebody my age would go and see. I wanted to go with Dad to everything, to Shakespeare, to Brecht, to um, new writing, to Japanese drummers. Um, So, yeah, really, really lucky. When
0: when did you start, like, participating in theatre? Were you in youth theatres or drama groups?
1: Yeah, I mean, at at the time in Scotland, you couldn't do drama in school. It didn't exist as part of the curriculum. But from the age of 10, I went to what's now um, Royal Conservatoire of Scotland at the time was Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, to their junior classes that are yeah. a bit like the Young Actors Studio at, at Welsh College.
0: Yeah.
1: So from the age of 10, yeah, every Saturday I'd be there improvising and, and making work. Um, and then when I left school, I joined a full-time touring youth theatre that wow. was fun- There was a youth opportunities program so it was kind of government funded at the time i think i think we got one pound 50 a week more than if you were signing on um but again that was an amazing opportunity a group of us who were between 17 and 19 performing in schools community centers we performed in the special unit of barlini prison in glasgow which was a kind of social experiment to look at the rehabilitation of some of the the most violent offenders in scotland Um, I still question quite why a group of 17- (laughs) to 19-year-olds were taken there. That
0: that doesn't sound like the safest thing in the world.
1: Um, It was an experience I'll never forget. Um, uh, But that was just... It was such a brilliant scheme in terms of... We were from all over Scotland. We were from such different Mm -hmm. backgrounds. Um, We were learning so much about team building, about socialisation, about um generosity of spirit all those Mm. great things youth theatre does um so yeah that was that was um how I started life post school
0: and and when did you kind of think I want to do this as a career
1: I think I'd always known that so at, at 17 I had drama school editions and they were dreadful um I, I was so arrogant. I was like, I don't need my dad's help. I would well, maybe not arrogant, maybe just wanting to escape from that privilege and and um yeah. um so I had drama school editions and didn't get in and went away to lick my wounds and realized that as all I was doing was licking my wounds rather than bouncing back, yeah. maybe my personality couldn't deal with the constant and frequent rejection that's part and parcel mm. of being an actor. So um, I then went to Denmark for a year and a half as an au pair.
0: Right.
1: Like, rambling stories as I say, because it's all quite convoluted.
0: <laughs> um, it's interesting though, in terms of people's pathways. they yeah, different, yeah. everyone's been. So you went to Denmark?
1: Yep, yeah, went to Denmark to escape from theatre completely, worked as an au pair. Only went to the theatre twice, I think, in that time. And it was to sort of see, because I'd been brought up with theatre, was it what I really wanted to do? Or was it just in some way trying to please my dad? Or um, or because it was all I knew? And I really missed it. And I decided that, yes, I wanted to do a drama degree because I didn't know what aspect of theatre I wanted to get involved in. And that would give me various options.
0: Was your your dad supportive or was he a bit anxious or sceptical of you wanting to to be in the industry?
1: He was incredibly supportive, but I think he hoped for me that I'd make a more sensible choice. (laughs) (laughs) There was a great comment that my mum's mate but my mum was marrying my dad, and she said, "Oh, we really love Ted. He's a lovely man, but we wish he'd got a sensible job. <laughs> we wish he was a, like a milkman." Um, so I think, yeah, he was thinking, "Oh, God, it's so precarious. Yeah, um, she's going to spend her life kind of battling and and not knowing where the next." next bit of money's coming from. Although his, his career, actually, because he, he then started working in drama schools as permanent staff, yeah. he ended up actually having quite a secure um, life in theatre. Um, one, one of the rare ones, I think. Um,
0: so so you, yeah. went, you went to Hull, the University yes, Hull, of yeah. Hull. What was that experience like? It
1: was great. It was... I think it, for me it was absolutely the place to be. It was 1985. I started. I'd spent time in Denmark watching very different coverage of the miners' strike right. from Denmark, um, and realizing how how hard life was in the UK under Thatcher. Um,
0: what do you mean by like, what do you mean by very different coverage in terms of not? Not the right-wing bias that we have. Exactly, in the media. absolutely. Right. Okay. And a
1: realisation of, of how selective even back then BBC coverage was. I, I came back and saw footage um, that was being presented because it was on the news as if it was kind of, this is what happened. And I was thinking, I've seen that same incident shot from a really different angle, both literally and in terms of political yeah. bias or political stance. And I think it was also part of the reason I wanted to come back. Denmark back in the early 80s was, it wasn't a utopia by any means, but it was quite quite a safe, quite an affluent society. Um, and I think being 18, 19, I wanted to come back and be part of the gritty fight against nature. Um, that was was happening here so Hull was a a really interesting place to go to the the fishing industry had died there was great poverty Um, a lot of the students were quite politically active Um, and it was cold the wind whistled in off the the North Sea Um, but it was and I think it was at the time when you were still getting full grants as students Um, so none of uh, I mean yeah I talk about Utopia, it kind of was, um, we were so lucky that we didn't have to work. None Mm. none of the students had jobs because on the whole, your local authority was paying both your, although there were no tuition fees, they were paid directly, but but were giving you a a grant to live on.
0: That is Um, unbelievable to me as someone who has recently come out of university. How was that? I guess there were less people going, but that sounds really utopian almost compared to what what my generation.
1: Absolutely, when you could really—and I don't mean that students now don't focus on their their studies. Of course they do, but that constant kind of pull of you know bar jobs in the evening or whatever. We were able. Hull was great in terms of giving you opportunities to use the theatre, as and when you wanted. Pretty much, um, so to generate your own work, and I think that's possibly why I think Hull still has quite a good reputation, and certainly the alumni have gone on to do a lot of really great things because mm-hmm. we were able to kind of generate so much work ourselves. But we didn't, yeah, we didn't have to think about anything other than devoting ourselves to our work. I'm not saying all the students did that, a lot of students spent a lot of time in the bar. Um, but the drama students on the whole, I think, because it was that great passion, that great commitment, yeah. um, and it's just such an enjoyable and creative thing to do, to make theatre. So we, we would be in the theatre till midnight every night, and up early. And, um,
0: was that where you started directing?
1: Yeah, I, I started in, in my first year stage managing and doing lighting design and set design. And a couple of the lecturers said, look, we really think you should make your own work. Um, you're, you're doing very well at supporting other people's creative vision, but how about looking at your own? Um, so in my final year, that's what I specialised in and left thinking I definitely wanted to be a director.
0: Yeah.
1: And two days after graduation, I was diagnosed with glandular fever.
0: Right.
1: Um, which left me kind of quite debilitated probably for a couple of years and the sort of energy that you need to start out in a directing career I didn't have at the time. Um, So I then applied to be the administrator. I don't know why I thought that being an administrator was much less tiring. It's just as tiring. Um, But I suppose it's more desk-based and and less physically active. Um, of a new writing company in Glasgow and worked for them for about a year and during that time shared an office with somebody who worked for another theatre company but was, she was also the chair of the Scottish National Association of Youth Theatre.
0: Right.
1: And the director of that came up. So it, it was a lobbying organisation, networking organisation, training provider, resource creator um and she said this job is coming up i've spent a year sharing an office with you i think you'd be great in this job would you like to apply Mm -hmm. so i did and then spent about a year and a half yes being the snake woman the scottish national association of youth (laughs) theater which was misheard often as the snake woman Um, and um really enjoyed that way of, of helping organizations to network to learn from one another's practice mm. and then my, my then partner moved to Lewis or to Brighton and was working in Lewis and I said I'll come down south if a job comes up that I really want yeah. and the job came up as director of the British Center and it's called
0: British at the time of aatege um, right you know of because we met through yes.
1: ACIDGE which is the French acronym for the International Association of Theatre for Children and Young People um, and that was a very similar organisation in terms of what it did to SNATE, but was about professional theatre for, at the time we didn't say Theatre for Young Audiences, we, we called it Theatre for Children and Young People um, Was
0: that something you were interested in before that job came out?
1: No, quite categorically not. I I think most of the theatre that I had seen growing up for children and young people wasn't great. Um, It wasn't particularly challenging. It was possibly quite patronising. It was um, a kind of veered between fluffy, unchallenging entertainment and possibly over-didactic, instructive theatre. Yeah. And so it wasn't something I ever imagined I'd work in. Um,
0: the the, the theatre and education tradition that we had had past Tempst in Wales. Was that a thing in Scotland? As well?
1: On a very limited scale. Um, I think the majority of companies that I saw touring into schools were not particularly rigorous. Right.
0: Um,
1: but there were a couple that were. Um, there was a company called TAG in Glasgow that was attached to the Citizens Theatre, and their work was, was really good. But on the whole, it wasn't something I was thinking I was ever going to work in. And I think having grown up in a tradition, or in a family where I was going to see Shakespeare and Beckett yeah. and Pinto and um, New Writing and World Theatre, But there was something about this organisation that excited me. And I will be honest, in those first couple of years in that job, I probably saw some of the most exciting and inspiring theatre I'd ever seen. Wow. And also some of the worst. (laughs) Um, And it was because it was part of an international organisation. I I got to travel to Cuba, to Russia, to Germany, to... various places and see amazing work and and also see amazing work in in the UK um and so I ended up staying there for or being there for six and a half years
0: and I I bet that helped you develop as a director as well kind of thinking about what kind of work you wanted to make
1: absolutely I think sitting on the floor yeah quite early on I went to, back to Denmark and I had no idea when I lived in Denmark that they at the time were one of the leading countries in terms of theatre young audiences because I wasn't engaging with theatre no. and to go back to Denmark and to, to see this beautiful multi-layered nuanced um, theatrically vibrant um, work that really put children at the centre was just mind-blowing and and, you know I remember the first time being asked to take off my shoes with a a group of three and four-year-olds and kind of go silently into the gym and sit down and their faces and their delight and their spontaneous responses and I suddenly went oh my god this is this is exciting work this is it has potential you're, you're providing children with their first experience of live theater The good work is really tapping into their emotional Mm -hmm. intelligence. Um, Because they don't have preconceptions about theatre, the the best work was using so many different theatrical forms and techniques. Um, And you'd got an audience in so many places that, in terms of socioeconomics and demographics, was so broad. Um, You know, it, it was you were going into schools in the East End of London um, and seeing work that was for children who otherwise would not be seeing theatre. Yeah. Um, and so I became a convert, and um, absolute convert. and knew that although I might still, uh, certainly was still really interested in adult theatre, but this was probably where my, yeah. my heart and my passion lay.
0: Uh, and in, in terms of age, when did you start thinking about making work for, for babies and toddlers?
1: Babies and toddlers was a little bit later. Right. Work three to fives. The first piece I worked on for that age group was when I was 36.
0: Oh, I didn't realise that this was a more recent thing. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd carried on being, um, after I left Assetaj, and I moved to Wales, I got lured here by a, by a, a theatre director from the, Kevin Lewis from Theatre Yolo, lured me into his heart. Yeah, Kevin
0: Lewis. I know,
1: I know, I'm into this country and, um, and I've been here for 25 years now and I don't see me leaving, I love it. Um, and, um, so yeah, he, he lured me here. So I, I, I started, one of my first jobs was as development
0: manager at Sherman, um, I worked for a company called Theatre of Bede, yeah. who
1: no longer exists, but Ian Rowlands, it was kind of a, a Ian's company and a platform for his work and the work of others. And I did press and, and publicity for them. Um, I did a consultancy for Welsh College, so I was kind of very much here in Wales originally, not as a maker of work. And then my mum died at the relatively young age of sixty six, not long after I moved here.
0: Right.
1: And Kevin was going off every day being a director. And I suddenly went, Life is short, you know, mum mum didn't live as long as we'd hoped or she had hoped she would. If I plan to be a director, I've gotta I've gotta just do it. Yeah. Um, so I started and, and again knowing I'm privileged that Kevin at the time was in a relatively secure job for theatre um, and I kind of did unpaid work, followed various people um, and then was asked actually by Theatre B to be assistant director on a project that they did in Newport, developing the audiences in advance of the Riverfront opening. Yeah. Um, and then did a show for Little Ones up at Theatre
0: Cloyd and then after,
1: after, and I stress this, a rigorous employment procedure and, and recruitment process, um, I was invited to be assistant on a kind of development project for early years theatre at Theatre right. YOLO. And after that, was invited to make my first piece. So that would have been 2001, I think. Right. Uh, and that was a... Tiny little piece that toured into nursery units themselves. So again, was fantastic in terms of if you're going into every nursery in in Cardiff in the Vale of the yeah. Morgan, you're really reaching children from from di- different ethnic groups, different demographics, different socio-economic groups, um, and bringing them their first experience of theatre.
0: And when, when you start making a piece like that, do you start with story, or is it something else? How, what is? Is there a starting point that you normally start with?
1: It's often some aspect of childhood. Um, so, slightly anecdotally, the first piece we were going to make for Theatre Yolo was going to be about a woman... It was a story, an Italian story, um, about a woman who loved brightly coloured clothes
0: yeah. and
1: was been so long sitting, looking at the sunlight, striking these brightly coloured clothes that she never arrived anywhere on time. And her friends got <laughs> hacked <laughs> off with her um, and told her to put all the, t- all the clothes away. And there's beautiful lines, something along the lines of... Um, and from that moment on, she was never again late for her friends but her life was a little more sad or something yeah. like that. So we took that as a starting point. And, um, and then actually on day two of our initial R&D, thought, this isn't a two-hander. This is either a solo show or it needs a bigger cast. So we ditched it and started improvising about journeys and came up with, because the show was called Are We There Yet? that whole idea of little ones going... Are we, there yeah. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And something started to crystallise in that. And then um, Anna, the, the female performer in it, I suddenly looked at her and thought, oh, I remember a film that I loved as a little girl. It was called Paper Moon.
0: Right.
1: And it's um, a, a once famous actor, Warren Beatty. And uh, sorry, talking rubbish, wasn't it wasn't. It was Ryan O'Neill who had a daughter, Tateamoni, or who was a child star. And it was this beautiful piece set in the 1930s. Um, so I'm so conscious, I'm rambling, and I'm doing kind of, I don't know if you remember Ronnie Corbett, when he used yeah. to sit in there and <laughs> go not... off it. Ridiculous tangents. Um, so shut me up if you need to. Um, and I um, uh, suddenly thought, oh, Anna would look amazing in that hat that Tatum O'Neill wore in Paper Moon yeah, and that was about journeys and that was about a father and a daughter travelling and we went and looked at the hat and we went
0: yeah yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, it was which then and, and I, I'm kind of jumping ahead I know that there's a, something you are going to ask at some point about yes. it um, so from that that led us to okay if this is loosely set in America even though we're not gonna do American accents, but is it in the nineteen thirties? There were people travelling for work, yeah. they were dislocated
0: from from their, their homes. Um, the music would
1: possibly be bluegrass fiddle music. God wouldn't nice. that be interesting a piece for little ones. Um, and so it ended up yeah being this 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 father and daughter and then a brother who was a fiddle player. Yeah. Um Uh, traveling and they had this beautiful traveling trunk that was like the one in the film the Marlon Brando Vivian Lee film of um, Streetcar Named Desire that had drawers at one side and a kind of wardrobe bit Mm. at the other so we found one of those in Jacob's Market and started playing with what could you do with that about hiding and concealing and could she actually hide inside it? Um, what could be in the drawers? Mm. And it was, it's just a kind of really beautiful, open way of devising where story mm. kind of comes after you've created a whole different series of images and ideas. And, and probably the narrative arc is the very last thing. Yeah. Um, was that clear then? Yeah, it,
0: it was, in terms of the way you explained it. So, off so, the back of that, do you think, like, the the playwright sitting in the room writing doesn't work for this type of thing? Yeah, so do you think you have to have a company in a room devising from day one Maybe you have a writer there as well, but the traditional, what I think of as the traditional model of playwriting wouldn't work with this type of work.
1: I don't know if I'd go that far, because I, I have both been commissioned to write pieces that other other directors have directed for this age group, Yeah, and we have directed work that a writer has sat in their room alongside R&D in the room, um, but there's very much been a, a writer-led process. So I think I think there are so many different ways to skin a cat. Um, I know for me, I am happiest devising. I'm right. happiest being a theatre maker. I, I find writing and sitting at my computer really lonely. Um, and I often feel that I know how to draw out from actors material and ideas and... Character, I find that easier in a way than sitting and creating those characters in my own head.
0: Right. Yeah. I have huge, huge respect for writers,
1: um, but I know I, 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 I have a very tidy house when I'm writing. Um, <laughs> I do every kind of avoidance technique yeah. possible. Um,
0: sometimes you just gotta sit down and, and write it, and, and that can be really difficult sometimes. Um, yeah. but I guess when you've got a group of people in a room bouncing ideas off each other that comes quicker for you and you're making stuff more instantaneously um,
1: yeah and you can't go off and put the washing on or no. do the testing because you're being paid to be in that room so I think it, it's possibly just about lack of discipline, lack of self-discipline as well
0: so, so, so if we talk about principles of theatre for toddlers and babies are there key p- principles in this kind of form or genre that you always come back to
1: I think there are kind of personal principles because um, yeah we, we, if we've got time we, we, and we come on to the, the specific baby baby work that, yes. that's got some differences Um I think in, for me, um, I think children have a... And I got told off by a neuroscientist once for using the word innate because they said there is no such thing as innate. They would rather use from the from the very beginning. <laughs> but I think from the very beginning, children have a love and an understanding of story. Um, and I think they are incredibly complex emotional beings even though they can't articulate that in words so i I kind of have one one theory that that's that we don't develop emotionally beyond the age of four we just get better at masking it or talking about it or intellectualizing it because i know that you know the rage that you can feel or the sense of injustice if somebody gets a job or an award that you thought you should have got it's not much different from when the child in nursery gets the toy that you wanted to play with. That's
0: really true, actually, yeah.
1: The feelings are exactly yeah. the same. Um, uh, or you know, feelings of rejection or isolation are not that different from in the playground when the two girls went off without you. You know, it's it's kind of. I, so and so I, I think. Sorry.
0: So is it about tapping into those quite raw emotions in their kind of rawest form then?
1: It certainly is for me. I, I, I kind of want the work. And I, I don't mean that there isn't joy and laughter and, and um, mm. playfulness and, and mischief. Um, but I think, yeah, for... for what I will try and do in a, in a piece for for babies uh, as well as, as three, four, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, is is try and make sure that we are exploring the full complexity of human emotion. The triggers for that will be very different. So, for example, in, in Are We There Yet? the bone of contention between Connie and her dad was about, they were travelling, so he'd got her insensible clothes, and in this travelling trunk was her beautiful dress. yeah wanted to
0: wear, um, and there was a constant battle
1: over that. But the the sense of frustration and disempowerment and um, irritation that she was feeling, and vice versa probably, were absolutely the same as in a piece yeah. for adults.
0: Um, yeah. Have there ever been times where you've thought, oh... We re- we've alienated our audience here. We've gone about this the wrong way and learned from that.
1: Um, I can remember one moment, and this wasn't about alienating the audience, but it was about, oh, gosh, we've been trying to be so careful, but it's still problematic. Right In rehearsals, we will often explore the full intensity of an emotion. Mm. So i say to the actors in rehearsals, um, don't, don't tone it down at the moment because you're thinking it's for, for little ones. Um, play the scene truthfully. And then from the outside, we'll look at, because of your size, because of the volume, because of their littleness, yeah. we may well find a way of keeping the intensity of that emotion, but making it vocally quieter, physically smaller. So there was a bit in Are We There Yet where the dad at one point says, Connie, no. Um, And in rehearsal, when we were developing it, I think he'd been quite angry at her. And we we decided, no, that definitely shouldn't happen. In one nursery, when he said, Connie, no, this little girl flinched and put her hands over her head to protect herself. And it was a realisation talking to the teachers afterwards that yeah in her home when her dad used that tone of voice what was going to happen next was going to be a fist or or a foot or a or something um so you yeah you've got a real real responsibility but I think also a kind of responsibility not to avoid genuine Mm. human emotions because our, our little ones are seeing and witnessing and observing human emotions they're feeling human emotions all the time so it's about being very careful how you structure it um, not making it last too long not having a kind of startle or startling aspect to it that you've built to it slowly
0: you build it gradually and yeah Yeah. you know it's there for a reason and you build up to it gradually yeah that makes sense uh, let's talk about some specific pieces, then. Now, so first of all, you directed Baby Bird and Bee with Kevin Lewis for The in September 2020, and then again this year. Um, so, what were the challenges of making this show during lockdown? Oh,
1: there were many. <laughs> um, as for the delights, as for the delights. It had been due to be a piece called Baby Show, which we developed at the Unicorn Theatre in association with Theatre Yellow, back in 2016. It was going to come to Chapter yeah. Studio. Um, it was one of the pieces of work that evaporated when lockdown happened and theatres were closed in March 2020. And then one day, joking with Lee Leiford, the yeah. artistic director of Theatre Yolo, um, I said, oh, well, baby show's set in a garden. Maybe, maybe we could do it outdoors. And <laughs> being, being the brave and visionary man that he is, he looked at me and went, maybe we could. And we realised that because it was for such a small number of audience, so audience and performer and technicians is less was less than 30 people. Yeah. That would be allowed. So it ended up being, I think, one of the first, if not the first piece of face-to-face theatre in Wales um, during lockdown. Um, The challenges were, was it going to pour with rain? Because it was outdoors. Yeah. Um, It didn't. It was glorious sunshine all week. Um, Chapter said yes to us performing it outside at at the front Mm. of their, their building. We were really nervous about... We've never done an outdoor piece for babies, so the, the audience were 6 to 18 months. Right. Um, so we've done... Over the years, we've done a number of pieces of work for that age group, but they've all, all been indoors. Yeah. So was the ambient noise going to be a distraction? Mm. Was Kevin going to get upstaged by genuine bees and birds? Because we were going to be able to stop them flying around. Um these babies, some of them had spent their entire life in lockdown. Some of them yes. had spent a really big percentage of their life in lockdown. So they hadn't particularly encountered other babies. They hadn't encountered strangers. How were they going to be about this, this strange, bald man um, performing <laughs> for them? Although as Kevin sometimes says, he's not sure if him performing baby theatre is a is a show or a sharing of hairstyles. <laughs> he's got a shaved head yeah. and, and often looks...
0: Like some of the how did they how did they react to what was was, it was in, like
1: it was incredible um the parents were really emotional because this was one of their first collective experiences since being parents if they were first time parents and something that if they were second or third time parents they'd really missed yeah. they missed this baby um I think we did manage to find a performance style that, that worked and engaged the babies. There there was a we there was a learning about the fact that some of the little ones, if they were in the second row, because the audience was socially distanced, they were much more spread out and Kevin was further away from them yeah. than in the work that we'd made previously. So there were moments where we felt occasionally a little one in the back row wasn't quite as focused on Kevin as had been the case. Yeah before. So when we revived the show, we tried to make sure that the younger babies were at the front. Yeah. Um, um it was just one of the most glorious just over a week because we added some extra performances because the sun was still shining. Um, <laughs> of lockdown, of just sharing with people, mm. of the joy on their faces. Um Passers by, that was lovely. That normally the baby work is behind closed doors, but yeah. people walking up and down outside chapter were peering over and, and marveling at these little ones who were six, seven, eight, nine, yeah. ten months old giggling in response to a piece of theatre. Um, and it just gave, I think, everybody hope um, mm. that at some point things would return to a semblance of normality, um, and that that even against the
0: backdrop of all the hideousness, there were moments of joy and beauty. Right. And, 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 and happiness. Yeah. yeah, sounds lovely. I'm so glad it went, went so well. Um, and let's, let's talk about the project that we did together. So we were, well, I was part of an artist exchange programme We'll with creatives from Wales and South Africa who make work for children and young people. Um, yeah, let's just talk about what the experience is like. Cause I I learnt loads and it was fab to meet other creatives from a completely different part of the world who have different. Experiences to me, but also I was surprised at how similar the experiences were between the artists from both countries. I don't know how you felt about it.
1: I think yeah, that for me was one of the great delights of of, of seeing from both countries. I, I think particularly about language and the the place of language in in culture. I've forgotten, and I did know quite how many official languages there are in South Africa, but it's kind of... um, No, I can't remember. Um, (laughs) But there were those beautiful moments of seeing Welsh artists and South African artists going, oh, shit. (laughs) Well, we experienced that too. Um, I think, to, to be fair, a lot of the South African artists didn't even know that Wales existed as yeah. a separate country. Um, they certainly didn't know that that the Welsh language existed. No. Uh, and I think that was what was so, so glorious about that project. Kevin and I had been over in 2019 to Johannesburg and ran a workshop with all of the artists that were part of this project yeah. and some others um, and were due to go back in 2020 and... I don't know what we'll paid to that. I, I, I
0: can't think why <laughs> you didn't go Maybe <laughs> it was
1: a global pandemic. Um, Could it be? And actually, what's brilliant... We, we need to look at what are the positives of the pandemic. Um, was that the British Council Wales then set up the Go Digital Fund, which was yeah. looking at how might artists um, collaborate, meet share digitally at a time when obviously we're not looking at people traveling and that was the beauty of it that it then meant that 16 young artists eight from wales eight from yeah. from south africa were able to meet and share and learn about one another not just two oldies from from wales going over there um
0: uh, and it was sad for me to have the opportunity to facilitate exercises in the workshop with all the other artists but also to learn about everyone's different art forms and practices because it was a really diverse group of artists wasn't it yeah
1: and i I think not i think i know that you're the session that you run about inclusivity and access has been an absolute game changer for so many of the South African artists. Really? They've cited it. Yeah, absolutely. They've, they've cited it in their feedback forms of you raised awareness of so many issues that they hadn't thought about before. Um, so I think, yeah, you could be... I feel bad that I probably haven't told you that in quite those words yet, but um, yeah, that that was a real game-changer for a lot of them in terms of how they think Mm -hmm. about their practice moving forwards, and for some of the Welsh artists as well, you know, I think. Um, But as you say, it was was fantastic. A a really diverse group in terms of language, in terms of disability, in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality. Um, And yeah, I think it was so exciting to see those artists collaborating. Um, mm. And as you said, discovering similarities and differences. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and to be able to make work online quickly with people from another continent. It's like, those mornings were so joyous for me. Like, it didn't feel... Like it was just an opportunity to create with a lovely group of people or in a really safe and supportive environment
1: and I think that was that was another thing wasn't it It ended up being a group of such warm supportive um lovely people and that, that sounds a bit kind of twee but it it wasn't yeah. there was such generosity and I, and I think such playfulness one of, one of our aims was to look at because I, th- I think everybody had got into a, a sort of state of going oh God, zoom meetings is yeah. is dull talking heads um oh I hate being on zoom I'll switch my camera off and partly I think because Kevin had attended quite a few clowning workshops on zoom where they really started to play with how do you use this technology? How yeah. can you try and find the playfulness and the experimentation that you'd have if we were in a, a literal room together, physical room together? How can you do that on on Zoom? Um, and I think that kind of influenced so much of the playing, the dressing up, the appearing with objects of different colours and and, and there's a whole series of really fantastic photographs of these artists thousands of miles (laughs) from one another upside down with things sticking out their ears um but it's that playfulness that that Mm. is what we love about making theatre and that that enables us to be creative and and deep and challenging and but that that element of play i think yeah,
0: really pleased with how that worked on the project. And I think we forget about it a lot. Like, that's what we do, it's playfulness. It should be free-form, it should be exploratory, if that's a word. Um, but we do forget about it, and we neglect it quite a lot. And it was really nice. Also, not to have the pressure to have to make something at the end of it. We didn't have to... Make something to share, um, but we created stuff every week, yeah. And it was really lovely to have a supportive environment to do that. So, thank you for asking me to be involved. It was
1: a pleasure,
0: I wouldn't have got to know you if I hadn't. Well, I might <laughs> have known eventually, but it was, uh... and uh, we're coming to the end, but I want to ask you in terms of how. Theatre for Young Audiences is how Theatre for Young Audiences is viewed within the industry generally. Do you think it's still looked down upon?
1: Sadly, yes. Um, I, I did some questions to various people working in the, in the, in the sector last year. And one of the questions I asked them was, what is the most patronising thing that anybody has ever said to you about the fact that you work in theatre for your audience, audiences? And some of the answers were, I mean, so shocking. They made you laugh, because if you didn't, you'd have cried. Um, and some of them, I suppose, were based on misconceptions. Or maybe perceptions, because I think somehow when there is poor quality work for young audiences and there is still work yeah. that is poor quality, somehow people therefore assume that that's what all the work is like. And I, I, I don't know how we challenge that because just because there's some schlocky, dreadful, potboiler novel, people don't therefore assume that all novels are that.
0: No. Except that there's
1: <laughs> also great literature or great autobiography or whatever. But somehow it, it feels like if you see a bad piece of theatre for your audiences, you decide that all theatre for your audiences is, is that.
0: Um Is it because childless adults within the industry don't go and see theatre for your audiences and therefore don't know what work is being created? Is that part of the problem?
1: I think it is. I think so so they have preconceived ideas or ideas possibly based on the pieces that they have seen that it isn't good, that it isn't intellectually rigorous that it isn't creatively challenging um, and I know that there's a um, there's a day about Take a Child to the Theatre Day yeah. which I think is, is organised by Esther.
0: and um, I keep thinking it's actually
1: take an adult theatre practitioner by the hand take them to see some of the really, really wonderful work and it's such so, you know, i suppose that's what happened to me i'd got all of these preconceptions and looked down on it and then had my eyes
0: opened yeah i remember taking that actually to a show a canadian show that was at the there
1: was a there still is a, a festival in edinburgh um organized by imaginate um the scottish international children's festival and i took him to see this fantastic canadian piece for i think kind of it was either for teenagers or just younger than that. I can't remember. And it was a long time ago, um, and he just looked at me and went, "That was just an amazing <laughs> thing." And I said, "Yes, that's yeah. what I've been trying to tell you." And I think maybe it's about yeah finding the ways in which we don't just tell, we we take and we show. Um, but it, it's a, it's a tricky one still. I mean, I know when when the the Wales Theatre Awards were in existence, it was great in one respect that there was an award for the best show for children, because some of the awards ceremonies don't have that. But the fact it was called best show, rather than production, was interesting. The fact that nobody from children's work was ever considered for best director or best writer or best performer. It was
0: just one kind of generic award and and again but, might but be that encompasses so many companies in Wales. Mm. Nanog, Van Wan, Barkhouse, Yolo making such great work and yet they were never seen on a par with the rest. Yes
1: um and i know we talked about that a lot about you know when's the day going to be when the director of one of those productions or a performer in one of those productions is given the award and I, it's really tricky there may be people listening in who are going yeah but the work's not good enough so that's why not um i do think it you know yeah it's possibly a combination of the two and mm. I'm, not, I'm not talking about Wales specifically but you know, in, in general um but yeah i I am thrilled that a number of times reviews have said of the work that I've made for three to five-year-olds, this is just like Beckett.
0: Um, right. They've um. made
1: comparisons with Waiting for Godot. They said it's like Beckett. Um, another review said this was like Chekhov for, for the under-fives. Um, and I know a few years ago, I just made a piece for Dieter that was a verbatim piece. From stories told to me by three and four year olds.
0: Oh my um,
1: and We made it into a piece for their age group. And it was basically two men in, in nice suits in a room battling for status and territory. At the same time, I was directing Pinter's The Dumb Waiter. And I suddenly went, this is a play about two men in suits in a room, back in status and territory, with guns, yeah. where one's in, in, under the carpet, they've got ukulele and a guitar, but you know.
0: It's exactly and, the same, the, the concept yeah. is exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and, and I think, I suppose is it therefore incumbent upon those of us who are making the work to be really rigorous? Yeah. And I think yeah, many, many of us are. Um, uh but, yeah, perceptions, you know, you, you're still aware that there's a kind of attitude of, oh, God, you, I'd have thought you'd have made it by now. I'd have thought you'd have yeah. been doing it for adults by now. Um, and I know certainly for me, yeah, I, I, I there is a possibility that I'm going to be doing some stuff for adults again soon. It was never an intention to exclusively work for children. But in terms of the freedom, the playfulness, the... I suppose the kind of marriage of political beliefs and and theatre as well, you know, that work, certainly for a long time, automatically went to all all of society. Um, I think things have changed a little. I think um, the move away from the companies in Wales going into schools has had a real impact on the demographic that they reach. And I don't think that was necessarily in the Arts Council's thinking when it happened but I think and I'm being controversial here um uh I think it's fair to say that yeah the the range of children in Wales that now see theatre has narrowed
0: I agree Um, yeah and you know before wasn't it that every Child would see at least one touring production during their time at primary school. You Absolutely. know,
1: it, it, the aim was for, at every key stage.
0: Wow! Um, and I think I think that has changed,
1: and and there've been positives. You know, I think venues have started to really think much more about their family audience, um, what they're offering children and young people, so mm-hmm. the, taking the work into venues. Has had real advantages too, but. Um,
0: but it can't just be at Christmas time either, which so it so often is. Would you agree with that? It's, you know. It's
1: phenomenally at Christmas time. I mean, you know, the companies that, that still exist in Wales are touring throughout the year. Yeah. Um. But I think it, it's just, you know, if you are a teacher, pandemic aside, you know. Yes. That, that, that's,
0: we'll that's get all. about that
1: not a war game but even before that the kind of schools that could regularly take their children out to theatres and when when my sister's a head teacher in tower hamlets in london and when i used to work at the old unicorn theatre that that was in the west end we'd often if a show wasn't selling well we'd ring her up and say look do you want to bring your children
0: and she was saying
1: it's just so tricky getting the parents who can be parent helpers that we in the numbers that we need to yeah. bring the children um they don't necessarily feel comfortable coming into the west end that's not their environment okay. you know, the, she she works in an area where i think over 90% of the children in her school are Bangladeshi or of Bangladeshi right. origin um and so yeah there there are there are threshold fears about going to theaters that we haven't yet overcome yeah. whereas when it came into your school um you were seeing it you were comfortable in your environment Th- those
0: um, barriers weren't their economic barriers class barriers they weren't and uh, you yeah, could just yeah. see the work come to school in the morning and see the work um yeah, yeah. but i don't uh, know if that's going to change or if that can change
1: I suppose there needs to be a political will for it to change, um, and an understanding of what we've lost. And I, and I think it's about balance. You know, I think it's about it's about balance. and and you know there are the, the companies in Wales that at one point in time were pretty much told no, you mustn't go into schools are now going back yeah. into schools in different ways. And there are a lot you know there are lots of schemes about funding trips and. Wales has been exemplary, I think, in terms of artists going into schools and working alongside teachers and working with teachers. That whole lead creative schools scheme is, yeah. is, is is wonderful, but it's different. It's not the same as having a piece of theatre transform your hall. Um,
0: yeah.
1: uh, to see actors, to, to have that experience, to be there giggling with your peers as you watch a piece of theatre you know the the arts can play an amazing role in delivering the curriculum and and enhancing the curriculum but that is different from seeing a piece of theatre in in,
0: in your so the last question that i'm going to ask you before i let you go um to enjoy the rest of your evening is what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry
1: I think this is the hardest one to answer. You know, the things that I've cited about the fact that there used to be support for you as, as a, you know, the YOP scheme, the youth employment schemes. Um, there was a thing called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme which allowed you to, to have money from the government to yeah. be an artist. Having said that, was it just yesterday, Ireland announced um, a universal basic income for artists. And I wow. know there's talk in Wales of, of exploring that because I think it's it's that real challenge, isn't it? How do you as an artist starting out balance your need to eat, have a roof over your head yeah. uh, with the, the the meagre amounts of money that you earn... Even if you are being paid, but the number of opportunities that are unpaid. And I, and the, I think what's great is in the last year, the Freelancers Task, freelance task Force, Freelancers Make to Work, general conversations with unions about the, the problems, the systemic problems in the arts, mm. mean that we are so acutely aware of freelancers not being paid for their time, and so many things have shifted in Mm. that respect and freelancers feeling able to say i'm sorry i need to be paid i'm sorry i can't i can't do that for nothing with a view to having um opportunities and and contacts that's kind of me gone off on a soapbox knowing
0: your worth can be important as well knowing that and that's something which young artists like me find difficult you know you offered to do a workshop in school and they're like, oh yeah, great. And no one mentions pay and then you feel awkward as a young artist because you want to run the workshop but you want to get paid as well and it's having those conversations can be really difficult or at least I found them difficult. In my I,
1: I still do, Kieran. I haven't, you know, I haven't got an agent, and I, I still know that any time that I'm having negotiations with an organisation about a fee, there's part of me that feels, oh, I sound greedy. Yeah. I sound as if money is what no, motivates me, and it's, it's so not what motivates me. But it's about, as you say, recognising your worth and and the value of, of that. So to come back to your artist. I suppose what I'm saying is, God, it's there's never been a harder time, I think, to be a young artist. There is some hope in the 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 fact that universal basic income is being being explored yeah. um, we must keep citing Ireland as a as a as a beacon of, of good practice. Um, but I think if it's the only thing that you want to do if it's what makes you feel alive, if it's what makes you want to get up in the morning, if it's what the way that you want to communicate with other human beings, if it's the way that you want to explore what does it mean to be human. Um, sorry, sounding a bit Miss here. <laughs> I want to explore animals. Um, not that I'd ever have been on Miss World. Um, uh, then the joys, you know. I, I, the fact that in a couple of weeks' time we're going to be encountering audiences of babies again, yeah. I know that my heart will fill with joy when that little person giggles at Kevin, yeah. or their eyes kind of pop wide open as a, as a miracle um, casts beams of light on their face, um, or their parent. Um, Burst into tears as they walk into the room because they're going, Oh, this is so beautiful, and this mm. is for my baby, and you really value my baby. So I think that the joys are unparalleled, and the challenges are probably unparalleled. Um, but, God, if I, I can't think of anything else I want to do, um, no. and yes, it's brought me such intense joy and pleasure. Um, and I think something as well about, yes, of course, there are, there, are, there are antagonisms and factions, but I think there are also many people in theatre like like we encountered on the, the South mm. Africa project who are so hugely supportive of one another. Uh, um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I suppose it's back to that great quote about it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Theatre is the best of places to work. And okay. there is toxicity and abuse and god knows what. Um so it was it's the worst of places too. Um I've completely avoided giving advice, haven't I?
0: <laughs> you have. But you've been very philosophical and yeah, I guess it's knowing your worth knowing what you want to make as well and putting yourself out there as an artist.
1: I've just suddenly thought of one bit of advice. Go on, which
0: go on, is, before you finish.
1: Approach your heroes. Um, yeah. If there's somebody whose work you really, really admire, <laughs> risk getting in touch and saying, I'd really like to talk to you, I'd really like to... Again, I know there's the challenge of sitting in a rehearsal room unpaid, but I think often people don't because they're scared that that person will say no. Yeah. But actually, even if it's just having a coffee with them and then sharing with you their practice or whatever um,
0: you know I've learned so much from doing 70 odd interviews with 70 odd artists and I have developed so much as an artist through speaking to all these really talented people so yeah that's really benefited me and yeah. it's true all you have to do is ask and the worst I can say is no Yeah.
1: Um, and go and see stuff when yeah. you can. And again, I know that, again, COVID aside, but, you know, cost is is a is a real problem. Um, but I suppose it's, it, is that what you want to do? You know, so maybe it's for going a night in the pub. Yeah. Because actually, and I think most of us do that. If we work in theatre, we probably, you know, I still remember when I worked in a shop and somebody said, oh, what did you do last night? And I said, I went to the theatre. She went, oh, the theatre. Well, I went dancing, oh. and I yeah. And I go dancing too. But um, <laughs> but one of the things that I love that that gives me me joy in my life is going to going to the theatre. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of one of the budget lines or budget headings in my in my budget is is seeing work and reading plays. And, yeah. and I suppose ask asking people have they got copies of plays it's, it's lovely on Twitter when you see something mm. going does anybody have a copy of I can read so yeah use social media to ask people for copies of plays that you might not have because they might be able to lend them to you uh. or books um,
0: <laughs> thank you Sarah this has been wonderful hour, so thank you so much for your time do overrun have a wait oh ah, it's fine don't wait at all um That's it for this episode of In Lockdown With. Um, Hope you'll join me in the next episode where I'll be joined by the actor and director, Gareth John-Bale, who's been in Grav that was recently on SOC. But until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.